Good morning, good morning, good morning. Very morning and happy birthday to my daughter who turned 21 about five hours ago here in uh, Las Vegas. Uh, and talking about Las Vegas, one of the greatest hospitality cities in the world, we have uh, with me David Marino and Mike Momol on the road in that fancy car studio of his. Uh, but even moreover, we have Michael Heck. He is the CEO of Greater New Orleans, where I went to law school at Tulane and visit visit very often. We've got Charlie on, David. Charlie. Oh, I'm sorry. What am I doing? Hey, even better. There we are. <laughs> it is, like I said, 5 a.m. here in Las Vegas, so you can imagine uh, for my daughter's 25th birthday. Sorry, Charlie. Hey, <clears throat> sorry, Charlie. Well, I was up watching that Warrior game, so I'm on a little bit of less sleep also. <laughs> yeah, I bet. On the, on the East Coast for sure. CEO and co-founder of JRI Cards. Um, and, you know, uh, this is a business in the collectibles side of things that uh, really exploded during COVID. Um, and also, of course, with NFTs and the capabilities that NFTs have uh, in the collectible side of things. So I'm going to start off with that type of growth, Charlie, what, what did COVID do for not only your business, but all the different uh, companies that were surrounding collectibles and hobbyists that were collecting cards? Uh, COVID helped a lot of businesses out. It also shunned a lot of businesses that were currently running at the time. Uh, the beauty part of our business is we're a vintage card breaking company. We do a lot of cards from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And when the current sports market shut down, meaning nobody could watch current players that are playing today, they diverted ESPN. They started showing Larry Bird, Julius Irving, Dr. J. They started showing old baseball players, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Wayne Gretzky. And that invigorated a lot of memories for a lot of people my age, plus or minus 10. And it, it brought back these heroes. They don't talk about these guys anymore. They were great. They're in the Hall of Fame. There's no tweeting going on. They can't do anything bad. And their bona fide cardboard treasure that is out there. And when it brought back these old older players and we watched them like they were, I was watching the uh, Lakers Celtic game uh, live on ESPN. They, they rebroadcasted with Bird and Magic and Jabbar. I'm like, wow, this was really fun. And when that happens, people want those cards. It brings back a memory when they were little collecting, like me, uh, shoveling snow, uh, cutting grass, saving my pennies to go buy these wax packs. And it sort of brought some people together into wanting to have this cardboard treasure in their possession. And that theoretically drove the cards up. And I know the Jordan documentary was a big part. Jeter's got one coming out in a couple of weeks. Magic had one on Apple TV. It's great bringing back the older players again. They're, they're phenomenal. That's awesome, Charlie. I mean, the uh, trading card industry is an interesting one because it seems like it has nine lives. Like, it's, it's not around and it comes back... <laughs> With the vengeance, and like you, I started trading cards when I was really, really young, and I still got my binders and uh, all of my cards in their proper sleeves from when I was like six years old. Um, but it seems like JRI does something a little bit different. I think the live streaming is a pretty big piece of what you all do. So how does that separate you all from other trading card companies? And also, um, how are you able to grade the cards for free? Like, uh, walk us through that part of the business model. Well, David, we make this whole business fun, entertaining, and educational. You just said it when you collect the cards. It was fun when you bought that pack and opened it, when you sat around with your friends. Uh, we make it educational also. Uh, the, big, the biggest thing is the excitement of the stream. We have a big JRI community out there, and everybody 
when I open a pack, whether you're in it or not, and it could we opened up a 1960 with Yogi Berra on top, whether you guys are in it or not, you want to watch. It's that FOMO, fear of missing out. So our chat room is always there. They're rooting for the people in the pack because they want to see those the, the pack fresh cards come out. Uh, if, if we do pull a major guy, like you said, we grade it for free. It's it's our honor and courtesy. If it's a Hall of Famer, if it's properly centered and looks like we come back in a good grade, uh, we do that for free as a courtesy to our JRI members that are out there and the people watching. But uh, as far as the stream, it's th- this business had had its ups and downs. The main downs were it was boring. It was not run by really a lot of people that were passionate about the cards. And what we do during our stream is make it fun, educational, entertaining, try to reunite families, father and sons are watching together. And we're just sharing the hobby business. And you said it had its downs. The eighties was brutal. People always call me up. I have hundreds of cards. I go, let me guess the eighties. Yeah. And those aren't worth anything. So it's bringing back people into the collecting business today and the older cards. So you talk about George Brett, Robin Young, Thurman Munson, Reggie Jackson. Uh, these cards are worth a lot of money. And having them graded is very important. Charlie, what's the difference from a technology standpoint of how you're building the community? What you're doing is super exciting. But I look back you know, to, to my day, and I'm sure Dave and Dave the same and probably you. That the community was, you know, six or eight guys hanging out on, in the parking lot at school, kind of trading cards. And and that was the, the community. Right. And if you got really lucky, maybe somebody in your neighborhood also did it. So then you could branch out that way. Now you're doing this, I, I imagine, globally. How has that affected the business and the interest level for your ability to scale? It's the scaling's unbelievable. Uh, Mike, this started out with me. I have a I always was collecting packs. They don't make them anymore. Packs from the 60s and 70s. I joke on the show, I went to CVS, Target, and Walmart, and they don't have any, a 1960 pack. Uh, this all started out as me as a collector of, of great unsearched material packs. And I used to open up with my sons every so often. And I thought, they said, what are you going to open all these? I go, when I retire, let's open one up now. We'd open one up. And we were screaming and yelling, but no one could hear us. Maybe the neighbor across the street. And that's when the idea came to me. Why should we just partake in going back into time? with this cardboard treasure, like a time capsule. So we decided to do it on a live stream. Then we decided to go to another level and do it on a live stream and have other people like you guys uh, across the whole globe. We have people from other countries and we give them one card in each pack and they're part of the action already. They, They love it. And if you have card four in a 1960 and it could be Willie Mays or Hank Aaron or anybody of the big baseball stars, it, it generates a lot of, enthusiastic camaraderie and chatter amongst the uh, room during the live stream and being with Facebook and YouTube, we can broadcast anywhere and it's free to watch. I mean, it's not Netflix. It's free to watch, but it's fun to participate. And every show is different. Yeah. There's a lot going on and, you know, I'm blessed to be around Ioki and Fleischman. I've been mentoring Dan Fleischman for years and their coffee and cards and streams. Um, what I love about it is it takes the capability, uh, and amplifies it, meaning the capability of a collectible, especially uh, trading cards, which you know, I'm blessed to be a, a little bit older than everyone. So I was buying packs of cards in the 70s. Uh, and, you know, by the time the 80s, I was uh, buying, you know, at the out the toy outlet, full collections of cards that are worthless. Um, and the truth is in collectibles, and most people don't know this, uh, most collectibles are worthless. 
So most art is worthless. Most statutes are worthless. Most bowls are worthless. Most trading cards are completely worthless. And I know Dave and I went through this as we saw lists and lists of cards being sent to us, uh, you know, by people and they were just worthless. But what you have done is taken the capability, uh, uh, the best part of the cards, which is opening those packs uh, and got and amplified it across the world so we can share in the excitement. It's a uh, Willy Wonka. The movie was based the, the first half of the movie was right. Finding the golden ticket. Yep. And you got, and you got to watch Charlie, you know, go ahead and every time they opened a bar, that was part of, you know, of the greatest parts of the movie. And you capture that every day in streaming. Uh, on the other side of the business, you monetize, you know, when you, since you have the capacity and the capability, do you monetize the actual golden tickets? And, you know, the authentication of that has enha been enhanced through, you know, NFTs and a variety of other capabilities. How are you monetizing when you do get the golden ticket? We haven't mon uh, done anything with NFTs yet. We're kind of a sit back and wait approach. I think our customers, uh, when they were little, didn't have NFTs. So it's hard to bring back that memory. That's something that's in the infancy stage and trying to grow. Uh, the main thing is when we do get a big, uh, big car, and I do it one at a time. And when you get a big one and you're up, and I was like, David, your card four, and I pull it up. And it, we pulled Mickey Mantle fresh out of the, out of the pack three times already. And when it's you, everybody's happy, except the guy that was third or the guy that was coming up on fifth. They're a little <laughs> like, I say, you're one off. But not, not every card in the pack's great or else, you know, they, they have a little algorithm back then. Uh, but we monetize it by just bringing back that memory, grading that card, our shipping capability. We get the card right out to the customer and it helps build their set or improve their current set that they have. Because everybody collects a different player, a different team, a different era. And even non-sport, you'd be surprised. Star Wars, Superman, Batman from the 60s. The three Pokemon. Stooges. Uh, How about Pokemon, Pokemon? also now. Well, yeah, Pokemon came in. It has always been around. And those, again, when our cards are, they're all graded on search and sealed from PSA, meaning they were never tampered with. And that helps us. 98% uh, of the product on eBay is searched uh, for the most part. And it, it's, it's, it's sad. But ours, I literally have tools here. I crack open the packs. You know, my hands are getting a little, they get a little cut once in a while here or there, little chips. But uh, it's like opening a fine bottle of wine. I, I let the pack breathe for like 10 seconds and let it go from there. Uh, the monetization is just, it's just the excitement and energy going out there. And then, it, of course, we're looking for PSA graded 10s. And the centering back in the old days was hard. But the fact that you got the card is you're 90% there. And that's what makes it exciting. Got it. Charlie, why are the cards from the 80s not worth anything? What's What, what happened there? Overproduced. And it, it really bothers me that a guy like Don Mattingly, Ken Griffey Jr., guys that if those cards, uh, Shaquille O'Neal, if those cards were produced in the 70s, they're million-dollar cards. So everybody thinks, oh, Ken Griffey wasn't that good. His PSA 10 rookie card is only $1,000. No, it's because there's thousands of them. They made so many. They destroyed the market. Uh, Don Russ, uh, Pops, they were coming out with variations and so many cards, 900, 800 cards in the set. And it's a shame uh, what they did. There were, and the earlier cards, there's no serial numbers like today. You pull a Nolan Ryan 75 and it's, it's beautiful. There's no number. 
That's, that's the only card. I don't have to say it's a one-on-one. It's orange, red, green, purple, whatever color they can think of out there. But I feel bad for the 80s uh, and early 90s. Uh, Dirk Nowitzki and Duncan to uh, Ken Griffey Jr. always stands out. Alex Rodriguez, Derek Jeter only had one big card. Uh, one of his cards just sold for about a half a million again last night at auction, the 93 SP Baseball you don't overproduce. They're rare. They get them in a good high grade, makes them even rare, and that's where the value is. But the 80s, I just shake my head. I hope it doesn't happen again. Charlie, you keep referring to grading. So what are we looking for primarily, those of us that are going to go up into our attics this weekend after seeing this and look at our cards? Are looking for corners that are bent or not bent and overall finish? What are the grading, the things that stand out? That's a great question. Uh, we, we were not graders here. We're not graders here at PSA, uh, I mean, at, at JRI. We let the graders handle that. And they are the most hated people in the industry. Not that they want to beat them up, but they're like the referees. They're like the lawyers. Yeah. They grade the cards. They have their system. But, yeah, it's the corners. It's the gloss. Uh, it's the centering. Back in the old days, the cards, when we opened cards, we, we, didn't, we were looking at, at a 10-year-old, oh, this one's off-centered. It was just how they were cut on the machine. Uh, the corners, the, the clarity of the card, the, the appearance of it, the edges, everything's there. We do our best in trying to grade these, and we're pretty good, but we don't estimate what the grade could be. We just say it looks really good, and then we leave it up to the graders. That's the hardest part of the business. Uh, tens are hard to come by. That's why they're worth so much. And uh, we leave it to them, and we don't curse them out every time, but they are the referees. You don't hear them. You don't know who they are. It, they're just in the building somewhere under a light grading these cards. And that's a big business also. In the business, you had talked about supply and demand, which I think is so critical today uh, because of the NFT craze and that people are confused, you know, that an NFT is somehow a collectible itself. It's not. It's the yeah. content that's the collectible. And, you know, I keep trying to share the experience that I've had with uh, working with PSA uh, and working with many companies in the space of baseball cards that has really helped me in the nft space because instead of focusing in on collectibles uh which they're being overproduced um the exact same problem but ex you know exponentially more uh as a collectible but utilizing nfts with private jets and golf courses and and real estate and the capabilities of blockchain and web3 uh really will be the future is there any technologies that are capable now, you know, whether it be in the authentication side of it, like an AI that can, you know, take like in baseball, you know, there's the traditionalists in, in real baseball, not baseball cards. <laughs> uh, they want the strike zone and, you know, balls and everything to be AI. So there, there's no, there's no ball refereeing or lawyering. <laughs> Is there any technology that can uh, create AI to, to give you that score? My dream would be if they can make an MRI tube and just set the card through and it comes out with a computer looking at it. I think they are. PSA hired a lot of guys on the tech side. That's how you have to do it. Uh, you get 10 graders, you're going to get eight, five different grades. They actually have a pool of people when they, on a really nice card. They have five different opinions. But if they can just get the card and it can just go through a slow little conveyor belt, like an MRI, zapping it, taking pictures, checking it, and it comes out PSA 9. PSA 8, SGC uh, 10. I think that's the technology we need. There's older cards that were graded that are 10s that look like 8s, and there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, 
There's cards that are sevens that can hand it back in and they come back tens. Uh, that's mm -hmm. the technology I like to see. As far as the NFTs, we're learning that. The only NFT we were thinking about doing is if I pulled the card and uh, David, you get the card, that little clip shows me opening a graded, unsearched and sealed pack. I pulled the card out. I held it for the first time in 50 years. And then we send it to get graded. That's your little NFT clip. It's original. It's the only one. And it shows you where you got the card. And a lot of people, one, one day uh, a wife bought a spot for her husband and he pulled a high end card. And I told them, show, what we edited the clip and sent it, sent it to him. And I go, that, that's a memory you'll always have. There was a wife, I go, we were, everybody in the room was going, that's a great wife, you know, buying her <laughs> husband a spot. And he pulled the great card and it was unbelievable. But that, that little clip that we have is proof that it came from the pack to the sleeve, to PSA, and then right to the customer. Yeah, so Charlie, what, one thing that's interesting, didn't David Rubin buy PSA uh, at Fanatics? Don't they own PSA now? No, PSA is on its own. Uh, Fanatics bought all the licensing. Uh, oh, okay. They snuck under the rug, underneath Tops, and bought all the licensing. And eventually they bought Tops also. And there's going to be yeah. a big transformation but, in the but PSA was bought by somebody in the last, because I know the... the uh, Nat Turner. Nat Turner bought them. They were a publicly traded stock. It was CLCT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nat so Turner. I was thinking Ruben, Ruben should have bought them, or a big collector should have bought PSA, because it would have yeah, been, yeah. been total collusion. They, they could have shelved any AI, any AI scoring. They could have shelved, and then they would own the ability to make any 8 to 10... <laughs> anything that they have. Ruben's going to do a lot for the business. He doesn't understand why you got to get a card. You got to send it to get graded. What, what JRI cards does is we make this collecting business very easy for everybody. When a pack sells out, you get an email. It's sold out. And then you get another email when we're about to open it. So you're going to have to watch me yap for four hours. So if you're in a pack and we're going to open it tonight at eight o'clock, you'll get an email. And that's when you can come in and watch and continue to watch. But uh, the technology there is great. Uh, as far as fanatics, we're going to see over the next couple of years. Top has been around since the early days, and we're going to see what Paul, uh, what Ruben does with that. I think he's going to do a lot of good things because the industry starting. We're starting to shift. What David said back into that '80s again. Where how many Zion cards are there? There's millions of them, and they got to be a little bit careful with overproducing. Well, you've heard of Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. He's Charlie in the Baseball Factory. Everybody's waiting for <laughs> yeah, the ticket. You're a, per a perfect character for that. And what great content you have. I love you and utilizing the capabilities that exist today in order to create great entertainment, uh, great excitement, great memories. And what I most like about it is what people like about baseball. It's one of the most cross-generational experiences that grandparents, parents, and children all share in the excitement uh, in the experience, which gives it an exponential value. Uh, check them out, jricards.com. The incredible Charlie Perino. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Charlie. Take care. You got it. Thank you. Um, yeah, it, it's really interesting because nobody could articulate the capability side of what, you know, and, and I liked your question, Dave, although Mike always gets the points there. Uh, about, um, uh, you know, that supply and demand, why the 80s? Because I always wondered, because I have a ton of 70s and 80s cards just because of my age, and mm -hmm. I could not understand the differential between, like, you know, uh, a, a mediocre player in the 70s compared to, 
you know, even on the football side, like all the Warren Moon cards that I had, you, you know what I mean? It's one of like the Hall of Famer himself um, who played throughout the 80s in uh, early 90s uh, and then into the 2000s. They got to be a little bit more, um, but it's so incredible. Uh, and I think, you know, as an entrepreneur show of Office Hours, it's important to understand collectibles and the value of collectibles versus the value of capables. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a person who invests in capables, not collectibles. Um, and extraordinary capabilities. I, I know Momola works uh, in the capability side of uh, the NFT uh, itself and, and utilizing. And I'm in some pretty big deals that have nothing to do with collectibles that are, you know, my, my most recent one is the private jet service. And, you know, I've been doing memberships for private jets for years. Uh, way back when, just rep, you know, Troy Aikman and Warren were the first marquee jet kind of spokespeople um, in the membership side. And what NFTs allow you to do in jet memberships, you know, is incredible. Uh, the problem is people think of NFTs as a collectible. Right. NFTs is a, cap- is a capability, not a collect. Uh, is a capable, not a collectible. <laughs> Matt, make sure you quote that one. Uh, anyway, uh, any comments, uh, Dave, Mikey? Yeah, you know, I just um, when it comes to like Moreno hit it on the head with that scarcity question and it, it and it translates right into like you said with NFTs and it just it's interesting to me how from the the dawn of human civilization we've always valued scarcity if there's less of something and why and it just continues in every industry and every business. Yeah, so much so. I wanted to welcome Rob since uh we got the names right here. Dr. Rob Fazio, not from the golf courses, but uh, managing partner of On Point Advising. And of course, like many of our guests, uh, has ventured into the author space. And uh, he has a new book, which I really, uh, you know, I, I, I really want to read. And I, I, it's next on my list. Bullyproof, Using Subtle Strength of Influence, Alphas and Strength in Society. Uh, and... You know, this idea of bullying is controversial, not in the respect that we should or shouldn't bully, uh, but I think it's defining what bullying is. Uh, and I think that's a really difficult part um, of, of bullying is, uh, you know, w- what it is and, you know, how we should act or react, especially with children. Um, and so, Rob, I, I, I wanted to first start because you, you, um, you know, in the psychology place, really understand the effects of bullying and, and what it is. But I think a lot of people have a difficulty because they can't define bullying uh, compared to maybe teasing or having fun or, you know, th- there are certain lines that most people would, would understand, but there's a lot of things that create fear and anything I think that enhances or creates fear would, would to me be, be at least Sub subsetted or defined it in bullying. Uh, how do we define bullying today? Oops, gotta love Matt. I brought I brought Rob on there, and uh, he didn't test this out. Um, but you know, Marino's uh, a very large human being, and uh, you know, it's interesting because <laughs> if Marino looked at somebody a certain way, they might think that uh, he's bullying and it's not that he's bullying he just doesn't smile and uh, where Momola is so small that he could look at you super mean and people would laugh at him and think that oh that guy's super funny 
Um, so I, I was kind of trying to get to the definition of, of bullying there. Go ahead, Dave, you can laugh. No, I was just going to say, uh, I wanted him to define it specifically as it pertains to corporate culture, too. Because yeah, when, well, when we think about it in, in the perspective of like children in high school, like, oh, that guy's a jerk, or he's teasing, or he's a class clown. It's all about, I think, perspective and how the person receiving it, um, you know, receives it. But when we get to the corporate culture, I think it's a lot more clear who's a bully and who's not, just based on the perception of all of the colleagues, the peers. And for some reason, one thing I'd ask, I want to ask uh, Robin comes back on is sometimes the clients don't realize that a, a rep, representative, an executive, a lawyer, et cetera, who may be a bully internally is actually a bully. And I've, I found that weird correlation throughout my career where folks that are bullies within an organization somehow have great uh, relationships with their clients and, and they're able to kind of turn it on, turn it off. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because uh, there is a fine line. That's why I wanted him to define it for, you know, children to start because it gets even finer when you're in an economic setting um, of what we do. So go ahead, Adam, Matt. There we go. So, Rob, we were just having a discussion of, you know, we, and Dave got a little bit ahead of me uh, because we t took you off. But, uh, you know, defining bullying itself uh, is difficult. You know, whether it's children or in the corporate setting, but I would kind of utilizing that as a set as a setup. We'll go ahead and start there. How do you, you know, define bullying? Because I know when you talk about the strength, the influence alphas and strength in society, the definition uh, is very clear in your mind of, of what a bully is. Yeah. So I, I define it as a bully is, is someone who consistently tries to get what they want regardless of the cost or consequences. And, and usually those costs or consequences are at the expense of, of someone else. And uh, you mentioned earlier, David, uh, which I thought was really important, that the definition is, is complicated. And what I try to guide people away from is getting caught up in whether or not they're being bullied or not and really focus on the behaviors and what the person is doing and forget about the word bully because once you call someone a bully, you actually give them power and you become a victim. I like that. Yeah. And um, so I, I really try to help people to elevate themselves and equip themselves to not get caught in that mindset and to find ways that they're not put into this reactive state of where they're on defense. And when someone feels like they're getting pushed around and bullied, there's usually two reactions, which are both reactive states of her mind. One of them is to avoid and the other is attack. And both give the bully even more power because they're used to people either avoiding them and never interacting or attacking them. So we need to find different ways to engage this person to change the cycle. Rob, the, the obvious easy question here is what are those ways? Yeah. Um, well, page 62. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> there, there, there are several, <laughs> several, uh, se several ways. Um, and I think the first thing is to, to realize or to pay attention to whether or not you're playing a role in some way in giving this other person permission to push you around or bully you. So, David, if we're in a conversation with Mike or someone else and he says the same thing to us, you may perceive it as, oh, we're in a great debate, and I may perceive it as I'm getting bullied. And so we need to take ownership of what our perception is. And then 
I have a process called uh, deals based on based on my work and research. And the first step in deals is to depersonalize and realize 90% of the time, the bullying behavior has absolutely nothing to do at, at, of you as a person and has everything to do with the other person's insecurities, unmet needs, um, you name it. And maybe they were bullied. So that depersonalization gives you a little bit of space to be more strategic and intentional. And the second step is the most controversial, which people, um, it, it sparks the most controversy, where I say you need to be empathetic towards this bully, realize the situation, realize why they may be creating these experiences. And because bullies are not used to people being in tune with them and giving them space to tell their stories and being understanding. And then the third step is, is a line, which is figuring out what is important, what their ambitions are, maybe agreeing with them. And those three first steps really shift the focus from I'm being bullied to I'm actually making some headway in this person seeing me differently. Rob, I think that's so powerful. And, and when you mentioned that, you know, having that ability to step back and, and have that empathetic approach and in, in what's wrong or what happened in this person's life reminds me of an old saying. Somebody told me a long time ago that hurt people hurt people. Right. And it's that simple. And, and so if we can have that mindset where, where you just had that pause enough to take a step back, that gives us the ability to do that. So how do we how do we develop that? It reminds me a lot of jujitsu. I, I trained jujitsu. And before that, it was all combat sports that were like boxing and taekwondo. You hit me. I hit you. When I, when I was introduced to jiu-jitsu, it was an entirely different approach philosophically. It was more of a, this is what we're talking about is energy, right, with bullying. It's yeah. one kind of energy being projected on another and what comes back. And so this is more of a transfer, using that energy, processing it differently and giving it back differently. How important are the skills that we need to develop internally, self-confidence, self-discipline and those things so that we're adequately prepared to handle these things? Yeah, those are, those are uh, great points especially like the idea of you having your own metaphor, right? Jiu-jitsu. So people who train in, in all different sites of sports, um, it's very powerful to have a metaphor to lean on because it takes some of the intensity and the power away of your experience of being bullied. Other people use metaphors like hiking or art. So having an image or metaphor that speaks to you that could help pull you out of that state of something is happening to me. Um, I think that I think that also it is so critical to not go it alone. And I might be someone that was you grew up with low self-confidence. I personally grew up with a lot of anxiety. And before any conversation and negotiation, I already lost because I selfed my talk my way out of it. And so being aware of what story you're telling yourself, but making sure that you I you align with what I call adaptive aware alphas. And these are people who have strong personalities, but give a darn about other people and are influential and powerful. And finding people like that, that you may not have to take the fight on yourself because you might be in a position where you don't have power and influence, but other people around you, if you're good to them and good hearted and you give to them, they will look out for you, protect you, and they diminish the power of the bullies. And in that capacity, you know, as a leader, as an alpha, uh, you know, I have studied extensively leadership and speak on this topic. Um, and it's interesting because there is a dichotomy that exists between those who give meaning to everything that they see 
uh, and somebody that's provoking or bullying or, or or enticing someone. And, you know, I'm thinking of Marshall Thurber, for example, if you read uh, Thurber at all and talking about social deviance um, and it's specifically perturbation, which is a mechanism that I utilize uh, as a leader to get the most out of people, you know, and uh, yeah. understanding as a leader, I try to be a mentor, which, you know, is in that supportive capacity of giving people directions to where I've been before and where I want to go. Uh, and then being a teacher, which, you know, absolutely, there could be no uh, alpha trades in being a teacher. You have to in, meet someone where they're at in order to explain it. But the most, in, 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 I think, conflict with what you've, you write about and what I try to teach is the idea of being a coach. Uh, because being a coach is someone who brings the best out of us. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that, you know, in psychology, that perturbation uh, is a mechanism if used free, uh, infrequently uh, in order to bring the best out of people or get their attention or raise their awareness. How does something like perturbation, um, and for those that aren't familiar, perturbation is uh, a strategic or an intentional way to perturb a situation to bring the best out, out of someone. Um, and uh, I always tell some of the younger people that work with me, look, if I wasn't you know, on your butt right now, you should worry because it means I don't care, right? And you worry if I'm not coaching you sometimes if I'm you know and you know I I believe that you know the hardest coaches on me had the greatest impact and I hated a, a football coach of mine a defensive coordinator I called him the troll and uh <laughs> he probably had the greatest impact on my life to to, to help me H how do we reconcile these two between coaching you know constructive coaching and and people getting their feelings hurt when they're coached uh or and this idea of of you know bullying yeah, you know, well, thank you. I wasn't familiar with that term, perturbation, so I'm glad. I, I always learn something when I come on with you. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think that um, I think what's what's important is something that I call value-based power. And so, what I want is I want people who are alphas and and very have very dominant, strong personalities, as well as people who are more submissive, realize that the, the foundation of value-based power will guide you through both from helping and equipping others and coaching them, as well as not feeling like you're bullied. And so value-based power is based on intentional influence that looks across four areas. And the four areas are yourself, other people, organizations, and society. And so where I think people make mistakes is they get too caught up in either their own self-ambition or helping others. And it, you need to have a balance across those four. And if you're focused on growing yourself and being ambitious, along with helping other people and your organization and society, it's going to cycle back and help you. And you're diversifying your situation so you're not out there on an island by yourself. Awesome. All right, um, Dave. Yeah, Rob, can you tell us a little bit about your MCC, the Motivational Currency Calculator? I was reading up on it. It seems like an interesting concept. Um, yeah. How do you really quantify what drives people? Yeah, that's a great question. Wow, I, I didn't even try to plug that. Thanks, Dave. That's a good one. <laughs> so the, uh, the Motivational Currency Calculator is something that uh, I designed maybe six or seven years ago, and it's based on David McClellan's uh, social motives. He's a psychologist. He has since passed um, that was at Harvard. And he wanted to understand what goes on inside of us 
that drives other people. And what I did was I took the research and theory and created a business version uh, assessment so someone in 15 minutes can understand what drives them across four areas, performance, people, power, and purpose. And I, one of my biggest pet peeves of, of psychologists, of which I am, is we tend to try to put people in boxes or call them colors and like, oh, you're red. That means you like results. And I, I thought there's more diversification to our being and who we are. So you could be high, medium, or low on any of these four domains or areas. Um, but usually someone has a primary motivator. And so what the assessment does is three things. One is recognition, which it gives you self-awareness and helps you evaluate yourself across those four areas through some assessment questions. The second is reading. So David, you would be able to take this assessment and see how good you are picking up on cues in different scenarios to across those four motivators. And the third is leading, which is how do I adapt according to someone's primary motivator? So let's say David's primary motivator was purpose and David, yours was performance. Anytime there is pressure, David's going to go to his meaning of something greater good. And you're going to go to, let's get this out there. Let's get this done. And there's going to be an initial conflict. And so the whole idea is shifting your language and communication based on the other person's primary motivator. So there's a connection first, and then you're more likely to be able to influence and collaborate. Rob, I guess the all encompassing, and I love that, by the way, question would be, how much of a corollary is there to all of this ultimately in success? And it sounds to me like there is. And my question is, historically, you know, when I was young, IQ was pounded into my head, do good in school, get good grades on these tests, and you'll do great. I was introduced to EQ in 1985, and my entire life changed because I realized I was more of an interactive human being. Social currency was how I operated. And so the more we can develop that. So what's the corollary there? And what is more, in your opinion, a better indicator of likelihood of success? You know, uh, Mike, this is an awesome topic. So I I think a lot of times um, new trends get overstated. So uh, back in the 90s, um, I was in a master's program in athletic counseling in Springfield College. And um, I started doing research and working on a thesis. And then I went on to a, a traditional psychology program. And I decided I was going to study emotional intelligence because it was this new topic. I bumped into a professor at Yale on the street, literally. And, um, and I started doing research on emotional intelligence and I thought it was great. And a lot of the academics started saying, you know what, though, it seems like it's everything under the sun. So where I come out on this is I do think emotional intelligence is important. I think that it, it gets overstated when it tries to diminish traditional intelligence. I think they're both important. And what we know from the literature is that IQ actually is is more a more predictor of success in the workplace. Um, but the EQ skills are also critical. So in other words, you couldn't have someone come into an organization that had really, really high EQ, but very, very low intelligence. They're going to have a tough time being successful. So there's a there needs to be a baseline of your traditional intelligence. Um, in order for the EQ to to actually matter. But what I love about EQ and social intelligence is that it gives everybody hope and everyone can learn these skills. So like I said, I grew up being a worry ward and feeling like I was a loser at everything. 
and I self-coached and I learned about EQ and I learned about sports psychology and that helped me. I actually think because we know more and more about the brains and how the the neuroplasticity works, our kids in schools at a young age should be learning about conflict, should be learning about violence, should be learning about how to bring others along, should be learning about coaching others. That should be embedded into the system, just like reading and writing and math. Uh, because most violence is because of a miscommunication between two kids. They don't, they're reading the cues wrong. Um, so I'm very passionate about the topics. And I, 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 that's one fight that I want to take on more at some point where it's like, let's, let's start teaching our kids earlier on about these social emotional learning skills. So they gain confidence. Um, and I believe in that creating different pathways where they gain more value and self-esteem and they don't, they have less insecurity so they don't feel like they need to bully more because they don't feel like they need the power and they could share the power. Yeah. If you're an alpha or you have to interact with an alpha, which pretty much is everyone understanding the fight or flight response to alphas, you need to read this new book, Bully Proof. Using subtle strength to influence alphas and strengthen society as a whole. I have uh, extended the definition of IQ, uh, even from this conversation, of not only intellect, but intuition and inspiration, all that can be transformed by people like you helping us and empowering us to be better leaders. Rob Fazio, Dr. Rob Fazio, managing partner of On Point Advising, extraordinary author, onpointadvising.com. Thanks for joining us here on Office Hours. Awesome dialogue. Thanks, gentlemen. Hope to see you again. Absolutely. Thank you for teaching us. We appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Very well. What a great guest. Uh, And I... uh, <clears throat> as a leader, as a you know, a self-assumed uh, leader of my company, at least, I find it very difficult uh, with the definition of, of bullying and how people immediately, if you try to improve them uh, and point out the, where they're dishonest to themselves, they immediately think you're a bully. Uh, and I think that's just equally important. How do you act and react uh, as an alpha uh, to alphas? as well. So that's a great book to guide us. Anyway, let's bring on Ulf Arnetz. Uh, he's here, CEO, founder, and chairman of How Technologies. How is H-O-W-W-E dot I-O. Uh, Dave, he, Dave, he's jumping on shortly. If you want to just jump to takeaways really quick, then we can come back to him when he makes it on. Hey, Matt, what kind of hat is that? I had to wear this one after the, the Celtics lost the finals last night. So You're just... You know, when it comes to sports, I think the word loser, I don't know if that's cool, <laughs> uh, just comes to mind. But it, anyway, how, who's in first place in the National League West, by the way? Right now it would be the San Diego Padres. Would be okay, that's place. enough. You can get off now. All right. Thank you. All right. Speaking of which, that was the San Diego Padres without Tatis Jr., the MVP of the league. We have the other MVP of the league, which is Machado, uh, just to educate Matt on baseball a little bit. Uh, anyway, who wants to take the takeaway of the day here? I'll go. All right. You want the Dave, you know, it's the, the development we're talking comes from within. And if we look at what Rob was saying and with the cards and everything, it's it, you know, the more we can develop confidence and awareness and, and all of these things that emanate with, with from within the better off we are in life and business. And so whether it's, you know, and we could go way out there in terms of the law of attraction, whether or not he's actually manifesting, opening a Mickey mantle, that may be way out there too far for some to believe. 
not so far for, for others to believe. Um, but with regard to dialing it back in, bullying, these things will happen in life. The more we're equipped by working on ourselves, the better off we'll be ultimately. Yeah, that's a great point, Mike. <clears throat> Dave, I think a lot of this goes back to what you say all the time, is just getting back to center. I know that, you know, IQ and EQ, we were talking about the balance of it with, with Rob, but a lot of life is just figuring out how to navigate situations and when you get knocked down, how to get back to where you started, um, especially with dealing with bullies and, and, and those sorts of things. So for me, it's getting back to center. Yes, and, and for me, uh, it was collectible and capable. Uh, I think it, it transcends, although it may not be as applicable uh, to each of our guests and you guys covered I think Foz, Dr. Fazio's, you know, extraordinary topic matter and subject matter. Uh, but for me, uh, the biggest uh, takeaway that I'll utilize is, you know, look at the capabilities of a business, not the collect the collectability of a business and uh, directive towards supply and demand. Uh, it's another way to articulate the picks and shovels uh, component of articulating that in a different manner, which is a huge epiphany for me. Uh, which is why I had Matt notate that as well, because you'll probably hear it in a thousand videos now that we have to look at the capabilities, not and the, the collect, the capables, not the collectibles. Uh, and I think that's true in the human uh, ego. You know, too many people are trying to be collectibles instead of capables. And I think maybe it's a stretch, but it could be applicable. Well, there's a lot of ables here, but it could be applicable to uh, the aspect uh, in empowering others is, you know, we, we, if we take a capable and not a collectible perspective, uh, we can empower others as well. Uh, Mac, give me a thumbs up real quick if uh, Ulf is ready. Yep, he's ready. There he is. Hi. <laughs> Hi, David. Welcome. So we uh, we, we have here, our friend is, uh, I'll reintroduce. Alf Arnett, he uh, is the CEO co and founder and chairman of How, H-O-W-W-E.io. Um, why don't you give us a little bit of a background on How as a serial entrepreneur? And I think if I'm not mistaken, uh, you have a question maybe you could ask us. Yes, for sure. Um, uh, first about, uh, you know, my background is that I have founded a couple of companies normally in Sweden and then... Uh, Take, it's taken those companies to U.S. quite fast. Uh, so my, my previous company have become quite large. And now we are working with a, a product that is for the CEO or a, a high profit and loss manager in order to ensure that the strategy really uh, ex becomes executed in time. Awesome. And do you have a question for us, Ulf? Yeah, I, I would like to know, you know, if it comes to mid-size and large companies, um, uh, you know, how do you look at, in, in this area? You know that, I hopefully, you know that strategies is something all companies have been working with for many, many years. And you probably know as well that the strategy execution is, is not done normally or at least not successfully done. Um, and in order to simplify the whole discussion, I think that everyone in an organization today, in a mid, mid, mid-size or large company and so on, they normally have all the important roles have uh, some sort of, of business critical application. Like if you're in sales, you have a CRM system. If you're in HR, 
yeah, some sort of application. If you're in finance, you have a financial application. Uh, but when it comes to one of the most important persons in the company, the CEO, do you think that it's going to change that more and more CEOs is going to actually use some sort of product in order to make sure that the whole organization is focusing on what's most important for, for the CEO and the executive team? One of you two want to go, you would like me to go first. Yeah, I'll go, Dave, if you, unless you wanted to. I, I'll, yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's consistent with what the theme has been throughout, which is uh, balance, right? Moderation. So I think that as we go into the future, in order to be effective, you will absolutely, CEOs will have to absolutely embrace technology because that's such a necessary part of where everything's going. But by the same token, they'll also have to rein in a lot of that humanity. Who are they as an individual? What made them CEO in the first place? What are their skills, their EQ, their IQ, all of these other skills that make them successful? Once we take the two of those and put those together from a humanity and technology standpoint, I think that's how we achieve ultimate success going forward. And Mike, it's, it's very interesting what you're saying. I'm absolutely with you. But I think it's a lot of old misunderstandings out there. And that is that if you have clarity in the company and if you make it more, more what you say, more straight about what you want, what, what's your goal, you know, what do you want us to focus on? Uh, at least our experience is that uh, many, many employees, like more than 80%, and also managers likes that. Because if you're working in the mid mid-sized company uh it's very common that you know one manager saying this is important and someone else is saying this is important you know yeah. so you never know if you're doing a good job if you're focusing on what's most important and so on and what i have seen um is that many you know it's old thinking that if you want to focus the company and if you want for this for instance increased revenue and profit which is normally a part of the strategy uh Many people believe that that can't be combined with improved uh, employee satisfaction scores. And we have seen the, diff uh, the opposite, actually. Interesting. David? Yeah, I was just going to say, Mike, you, you, you summed it up well. I mean, I think balance is the way to look at it. I think, obviously, we're seeing an influx of more and more technology to optimize literally everything. I think one, like... Great example is is Microsoft Insights. It's a tool on your email to optimize, you know, your focus time and how quickly you respond to messages. And I just discovered it yesterday, uh, and it's something that just popped up within the last, you know, six months or, or a year for me. So obviously, I think more and more advances are going to lead to more efficiency. But I, I think Mike hit the nail on the head. We've got to maintain those, the human interaction. We can't be one hundred percent reliant on those advances. Well, I think too, Dave. Uh as my uh, answer is applicable, is how do we, you know, utilize the stage theory? So the issue is, uh, you know, the how to prioritize, prioritization being the confirmation uh, of knowing how. What do I mean by that? If you know as a company, as an organization, what the objectives are, who we can help with those objectives, and who can help us, then we go to the how, and in this case, I, I spell it, uh, Ulf, in honor of you, H-O-W-W-E. When we know the how, we're more productive, accessible, and gracious with our time. Things like Microsoft Insights allow us to modify the usage of our time and then amplify that, uh, which creates you know greater productivity, accessibility, and gratitude. But 
this idea of what's important is uh, the antidote to procrastination and feeling overwhelmed. The two greatest interferences to production are procrastination and feeling overwhelmed. Both uh, create non-productivity, accessibility, and uh, unfortunately, a lack of gratitude. Uh, and so I think what is so interesting and what how helps us with as well is to that uh, end a confirmation that everyone's on the same page, that we all have uh, the capabilities aligned in order to effectuate the objectives uh, of the future by knowing the what, the who, the how with two W's and creating the now. Uh, all thank you so, so much for joining us. We appreciate you. Uh, everyone, please, if you're interested in understanding uh, how, no pun intended, to uh, best utilize technology <laughs> in order to uh, prioritize what's important for you and your company, balancing all the different levels uh, in an organization, one of the market-leading SaaS solutions that accelerates the execution and gives you the financial results that makes your goals clear and actionable for all and everyone in one platform. Uh, utilize it to modify and amplify uh, your great leadership qualities uh, and your capabilities. Uh, you can check them out as well uh, on the NASDAQ. Uh, off, come back and join us again. We'd love to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you, David and David and Mike. Thank you. Thanks all. You're off. Thank you. CEO and founder of chairman of How H-O-W-W-E Technologies. It's a great technology <clears throat> in order to effectuate what we're doing. <clears throat> uh, Mike Katarina is here. Is it, are we missing someone? No, we're good. All right. Anyway, gentlemen, we have training uh, today in about an hour and five minutes. A uh, little hot seat coaching. Love to see you guys join us there. Always appreciative of your attendance uh, to anything that we're doing. David Marino and Mike Bomola, always a pleasure in the Friday edition of Office. Oh, by the way, I'm, likewise, this is so much stuff. I'm going to point this out before I leave. I know my priorities are right when you know I, I'm uh, prioritizing my daughter's 21st birthday, who you both know, Mia, uh, is 21 today. She was born on Father's Day, June 17th, uh, 21 years ago. Uh, greatest Father's Day gift you can get um, as a uh, is a daughter. Uh, and so, you know, it's a, it's a blessing, but uh, to that matter, uh, there's also something else going on today and I forgot about it. Um, and within my organization, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, but I'm glad that my priorities are set correctly. Uh, but office hours season two is launching today on Apple TV. Uh, so, uh, please, it, it's the, the best production that I've had of all the movies, TVs, uh, that I've been involved with, uh, hosted, produced, directed, whatever I've done, the content uh, is extraordinary. Uh, and it, it's just good. It, it'll, it'll speak for itself. Reciprocal being one of my taglines, not just uh, in my signature, in my email, but for this TV show. So anyone out there that likes Office Hours, the digital version, the uh, non-traditional version from you know, the mountains in a, in a car to a prison cell where David Marino <laughs> uh, to a hotel room in Las Vegas. Dave almost <laughs> smiled at that. He almost, he like smirked. Dude. It's he, inside. It comes from the inside with him. I'm I convinced. Just, yeah. No, I, I use him as my litmus test of funny. If I, oh, can yeah. get, him to, if I get him to smirk, <laughs> it, I get him to smirk. It's funny. If I get him to, to calf smile, it's funnier. And if I actually get him to smile, I know I got a winner. 
And so you, I can read them out to like, you know, the late night host to be qualified for like really good jokes. If, if you, you know, if you can get them to fully smile, make me that, laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Use that joke on the monologue. Anyway, check out office hours. Happy birthday, Mia. Happy I love birthday. you. And, uh, Happy and uh, I always got your back, Mia. Thank you so much, guys. I'll see you on training today. Yes. Hour and three minutes. I appreciate you. 7 a.m. Pacific time. Every single platform you can reach us on the training I've been doing for over 22 years. My dear friends, David Marino, Mike Bamola. I will see you guys soon. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Have a good trip there, Mikey. Uh, I like that white interior. You can't, you know, Mike Momola has no kids with that white interior. That, that, that stuff is not going to last. Uh, anyway. All right, everyone. If you want, by the way, those daily practices, the five daily practices, the what, the who, the how, the now, and applying the why, please join me, uh, david at dmeltzer.com. Join me for training, david at dmeltzer.com. It's right below there, david at dmeltzer.com. Remember, everyone, most importantly, be more interested than interesting. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you at 7 a.m. Pacific time. Thanks.